I do believe that all relationships can be saved as long as everyone is committed to making it work. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Priori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Daniel Priori, and today I have a very special guest. He is an LMHC certified therapist, and he's the owner and operator of Therapy is for Everyone. It is Mr. Mac Stanley Cazot. How are you doing, sir? Hey, Danny. Thank you for having me. I am feeling great. It's beautiful outside, so we're in a great mood. Where, where are you located? I'm currently in Jersey. Okay, yeah, I'm in Jersey as well. I'm in Jersey City. Nice. But first off, thank you so much for coming and spending time with us today. I'm really excited about this conversation. You know, you specialize in many things, uh, but I'm very excited to talk to you about uh, the couples counseling uh, since I am getting I'm getting married next month. Oh, congratulations, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. So excellent. So, yeah, thank you. So we tricked we tricked you into a free session today. <laughs> OK, well, you got the right guy. All right. It sounds good. But if we have to charge it to my insurance, we could do that, too. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? What was Little Mac like? I was born and raised in Haiti. I came to America around the age of 14. So I've been here for about 17 years now. So growing up was very interesting because I grew up from a Haitian culture to now an American culture, different language, different norms, different ways of life. So it was very interesting and I had to get comfortable managing that. But overall, I would say having access to both culture has allowed me to develop a work ethic that I'm very proud of, but also helped me understand those I get to work with because I can see things from different viewpoints, from different cultures, from different experiences. And I can therefore be more, I can tailor my interventions a lot better. Man, I have so many questions for you. I'm going to try and rattle them off as much (laughs) as possible. So when you came here, right, 14 is a tough age for anybody. Very. To have such a culture shock at 14, your body's already going through so much stuff physiologically. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. you're going through so much stuff already. What was the craziest thing for you about seeing American culture at 14? Oh, man. So back home in in Haiti, I went to private school. So I wore uniform and your shirt had to be tucked into your pants at all times. Whenever... I went out, my shirt was tucked into my pants, wearing shoes, sneakers was not something that you wore to go out. My first few weeks of school, I would be tucking in my shirt. I would be wearing my Sunday shoes, your church shoes, as opposed to sneakers and leisure wear. So eventually, you know, when people started to point those things out, like to me, it was like, why are you not dressing your best? Why do you not have your Sunday outfits on? That was very interesting 
for me to navigate and being able to come back home and be like, all right, cool. Pops, mom, auntie, uncle. I need some sneakers. I need some Jordans. I need some Nikes because I'm standing out too much and that's not safe for me. You're going from Haiti where statistically everybody kind of looks the same, right? Correct. And then you move to Queens, which there's neighborhoods of Queens where you have inner city parts of Queens. So like Queens is so big. People just hear Queens and think like everything's just like uh, Southside Jamaica. It's not like that. It's a big melting pot. What was it like for you when you saw like your first like Puerto Rican person. Oh man. <laughs> Speaking from a Puerto Rican, I, I always wonder what it was like to just be like, yo, like, are they black or are they white? Like what's going on with these guys? So that's actually the most in- interesting thing for me. Cause I felt very close to Latinos and Hispanic, right? Our culture mirrored each other. The food is very similar. Plus I was introduced to Spanish prior to English. So if, if you look at French and you look at Spanish, they're not that different, right? So so to, to me, I felt more comfortable being around Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, because they felt like home. They resemble home the way that they be that they behave, the way that they talk was natural to me. Now when I'm deal, dealing with black Americans, now that's different because I'm not used to that type of culture. Right. So the Hispanic culture was a lot closer to the Haitian culture. So I felt more comfortable. And if now, now, now that I'm thinking back, most of my friends throughout my life has been Hispanics. Yeah, because you do, you know, you have kind of have that kind of Caribbean, obviously, immigrants. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Even for you, though, I mean, you've been here 17 years. You're one of us now, but sorry. <laughs> I, don't you know I, mean? that, <laughs> I don't know about that, man. I don't know about that, baby. I hear you. Listen, man, there's times where, you know, I wish that I could claim somewhere else. Well, what's going on in this country from time to time, but that's a whole nother topic of conversation. Exactly. But that's the other thing too, man, for you and mental health, right? What was mental health like growing up and what's mental health like in Haiti? There was no such thing. There's still no such thing. If you ask my parents, what is it that I do? They'll tell you that I just sit at the computer and talk to people, right? Because in the Haitian culture, things are either done because of God or done because of, to some degree, Black magic. So if someone presented with any mental health issues, it was because someone did something to that person, right? And something that needed to get undone. Or even if something medical happened, Right. I'm guessing due to the lack of resource and due to the lack of knowledge and due to the impact of slavery, they automatically went to the concept of someone harmed this individual. Hence why they're presenting with depression, anxiety, speech impairment, behavioral issues. Right. So, I mean, even now, it's still that that same concept, but I would say there has been a rise in and Black Americans seeking therapy, including Haitian, but Haitians that are either was born here or back home, I get it a lot. So I would say the tide is changing, but there's still a lot of work that needs to get done. You think that's just like a resource thing, or do you think uh, it's mostly just a uh, traditional thing? I would say a lot of times there's a lack of knowledge that stops people from understanding what's happening. So if they can't understand it, they just claim it's done by a higher power versus having the verbiage or the resource to go seek 
to understand ex- exactly what's happening. Let's stay on the topic of uh, black magic, right? Because a lot of the times, like, you know, from the research that I've done, there's a spiritual connection there, right? Is there any of that stuff that you do kind of just hold on to just because of your upbringing and your, you know, your family's ethos? Like, is there still some of that stuff that, you know, you kind of keep near and dear to you because of the culture? Yeah. So I, I would say that tends to be a mischaracterization absolutely of caribbean culture in general right when 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 it comes to black magic or voodoo in reality only 5% of haitians practice any type of black magic the majority follow christianity right growing up yes i, I was definitely raised with, within the the concept of nature within the con the concept of energy and the spiritual world so even now at times like when i get sick i'm not looking for medicine i'm calling and saying hey what tea do i need to drink what leaves do i do i need to gain access to right so i'm looking for more home-based type remedies and in terms of the spiritual world it's, it's always been about being able to see what's invisible to you right um, when you're assessing someone, when you're looking at someone, what what is your gut telling you and what are you experiencing when you're in their presence? For sure. I mean, that's why I want to talk about it, because I think it gets a negative connotation just through pop culture and what people see of black magic. You know, I've Googled so many things in my life. When you go down those holes, you start to see kind of different layers of why people practice certain things. For lack of better expression, there's a method to everybody's madness. Correct. When, you know what I mean? To to have these building blocks. By the time you get to, to college, you know, senior high school area, were you drawn to mental health early? Was it something that came to you a little bit later in life? Or was this something that inspired you from your own faculties and then your own situations? That is a great question. In reality, to be honest, I was drawn to relationships in general, right? Like when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, as a male, as a heterosexual male, right? You're thinking about women. Yes. Right? You're you're trying to meet as many women as possible. You're trying to go on dates. You're 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 trying to date. So the concept of dating was very much something that I obsessed over, right? So I would do a lot of research. I would read a lot of books. I would help my friends get into relationships. A lot of people would come to to me for relationship advice. And I think that's what continued throughout college as I went into a psychology degree, just to understand myself more, to understand society more, and to just understand people in general and tie Mm. that back to dating, love, and relationships. Mental health, I had no idea what that was whatsoever. I had graduated college, Queens College, right? And I was working full time. And see, I, you see, baby. Exactly. And that ain't like waking up, going to work, going back home, waking up again, going to work and going back home. I felt like it was not fulfilling at all. I went on a search for grad school looking for psychology then mental health, psychology, they intertwine. So I actually applied to grad school four weeks late. And yeah, so I was able to call and be like, hey, I sent my application over two months ago. Um, I didn't get no reply yet. What's going on? That's highly unprofessional. So technically I use my psychological skills to get get myself an interview the next day. And then I started, yeah. (laughs) And then I started the week after, even though I was in the program, I still didn't 
fully grasp the, the concept of mental health, but I knew psychology interested me. And eventually I took a course on marriage and family. And at the time I, I was in a relationship with the partner that I'm with now. And our relationship was not the best because I didn't know exactly how to make a relationship work. I knew I loved her. I knew that's a woman I wanted to grow old with and start a family with. But I sucked as a boyfriend and nobody could give me any tangible skills. So by taking that class, I was introduced to a different form of corpus therapy. And one of them was Gottman, which spoke to me. It was very data-driven. It was very skill-based. I went home that night, me and her sat, and we literally worked on our relationships for four hours. And since that day, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Wow. So I'm a very data-based guy too, as well. So I suffer from panic disorder. Cognitive behavioral therapy was a huge just a huge, it's a huge pillar in my life. So, you know, I love it. And, you know, uh, I read a book called uh, Mastery of Anxiety and Panic by David Barlow. It's pretty much a workbook mm -hmm. that breaks down the scientific reasons behind fight or flight and why I have these sensations and, you know, all that stuff. So I love database stuff because it kind of, you know, when I first started going to therapy, it's cool because, you know, you kind of start with, you know, what was life like? Mm -hmm. you know, but the good thing about cognitive behavioral therapy is the coping mechanisms and learning like the data behind it. And I'm Correct. Sure. And it's yes. practical yes. and it makes sense, right? Being able to say 96% of the time, the way you start a conversation is exactly how it's going to end. Mm. Oh, okay, cool. So how do I start conversations better now? Yes. Right? It's very practical. It's scientifically proven. So you're not hearing an opinion. You're not hearing advice. I feel like Nowadays, when it comes to relationship, everybody has an advice. I'm not seeking advice because what worked for you will not work for me. But mm. what I need to know is how to fish, right? Not where to go or what to do. No, I need to know how to fish. And that was the benefit of me doing this work because it, it gave me the skill sets and the knowledge that I needed. And plus, I asked myself, how many others are looking for these answers? just like me, but was not previewed to it. So oh, now great. with my privilege of being a therapist and being given access to certain rooms or certain information, that could take it to all of us and share it so we can have better, healthier relationships. I don't like to judge on this show, but I think that anybody that's not willing to admit that they need a little bit of help just isn't there yet. It's almost like with an addict, right? Like an addict has to hit rock bottom. You know, an, an addict has to want to get help. I, I feel like it's the same way in relationships that people let their relationships kind of define their entire personality and being, if that makes any sense. 100%. Say someone's a serial dater and they get into a certain situation where they're like, yeah, I just like, I just can't keep a man. And it becomes their personality. It becomes their identity. I just couldn't really feel anything out, like keeps trying with other girls and other girls. It's like, you know, a lot of people have a hard time looking inward for a lot of things. Yes. Well, do you feel that way too when you start to get exposed to this kind of therapy? Oh, yeah, man. I, a lot of work that being a therapist allowed me to look at myself in the mirror and identify the parts of myself that needed healing, right? If I'm going to be a healer for others, I had to heal myself first, right? If I'm going to talk about relationships, I had to fix my relationship first. 
me and my partner, um, we haven't had a conflict in over eight years. We have disagreements, right? Because we're two different people from two different worlds. So we're going to have two, two different perspectives on a number of things. But a conflict is a lack of skill sets. We have those skills, right? We continuously implement them. So we're not going to have a conflict, but we're going to have a disagreement. And in reality, what I do see in the dating, in relationships in general, is that we go into relationships without the skills. Yes. Right? Before you become a teacher, before you become a therapist, before you could drive a car, there's certain tests and education that's actually needed. Because the only thing they teach you about relationships is like, wear a condom and don't get STDs and don't get pregnant. Exactly. So, so I have a tendency to find those couples that they love each other. They want to be together. But the relationship is becoming extremely difficult because they just don't know how to navigate it. Mm. That's where I come in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, like I said, there's millions and millions of people that need to hear this conversation. And the other thing, too, is you brought up Gottman's. What exactly is Gottman's? So Gottman, um, asking for a friend, <laughs> Dr. John Gottman and his wife, um, he's a scientist as a psychologist. He basically started a research lab on relationships. Well, he invited oh, wow. couples for the past 40 years to just come stay in a one-bedroom apartment. There's cameras everywhere. You are hooked to different machines. And there's a two-way mirror where there's a number of scientists and computers just coding everything that you're doing, right? The reason why I am a fan of that approach is, again, it's data-driven, it's practical, and it's focused on the skills. Too often, we're giving opinion from a biased point of view, right? We tend to say, um, out of sight, out of mind, but distance makes the heart grow fonder. That's the same thing. Yes. But an oxymoron that comes. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Exactly. So one might work for you, but one might not work for me. But in reality, what's needed to make any relationship work, one is friendship. It's a bit of connections. It's intimacy. It's knowing how to handle conflict. It's knowing how it's having sh shared values, sh shared dreams, and et cetera. So the distance really doesn't play that big of a part. But the skill sets is what determines who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. For example, right, if we get on the basketball court and we're shooting three-pointers, if it's a skill of mine, I'm going to win. If it's, not, if it's not a skill of yours, you're not going to win. No matter how much you want to win, you lack the skill set. Yes. And, you know, a lot of it, too, is to keep it in the realm of uh, sports is intangibles. You know, intangibles is one of my favorite words because you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people have the intangibles to get to the dance, but they don't have the necessary uh, skill set. It's almost like God-given talent, right? Mm -hmm. All God-given talent has to be polished in a sense to be able to, you know, I'm sure, you know, you look at guys like Steph Curry, right? You don't think he shot the ball four million times before that to be able to do it on such a grand stage? It's anything exactly. else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, right? The mechanics of shooting, how to place your feet, how to receive the ball, your follow-through. There's there's a whole science behind it. And it's the same concept for relationships. There's a science behind communication skills. There's a science behind friendship. There's a science behind rituals of connections, Right. So going to gain that knowledge, um, being around those that have those knowledge is going to arm you with what you need to make your own relationship work. 
right? Because choosing a partner is the biggest decision we'll ever make in life. And especially for us men, being part of a healthy relationship raises our life expectancy from four to six years, right? You're less likely to have a medical or mental health issue if, if you're in a healthy relationship. You're more likely to be financially stable. There's a lot of benefits as human because we crave interaction and we, we crave closeness to be part of healthy relationships because it, it's, it's the cheat code to life. It is to have somebody that's on the same page with you and you guys support each other in your goals and stuff. It's like having two of you almost. Exactly. I always feel like a lot of people go to therapy and they share 90% of the truth, which is a great number, uh-huh. it's a great number. But the 10% usually outweighs the 90%. Yes. So that's a great question. And I'm actually not going to put it on the therapy goer. That's more of the therapist, right? Oh, elaborate, please. Yeah. Part of our job is to get you to show up. As long as you show up, our job is to engage you and build rapport with you so you can feel comfortable sharing what's happening for you. If you are choosing not to, that's more than likely because you don't feel safe. You don't feel like the therapist can handle that or or there's a number of things, right? Part of our job is to one, do, do a proper assessment so we can understand what's going on, even if you're unable to voice it. Because a lot of times you might not even be aware of that 10%. Your 90% can be your 100%, but it's the therapist's job to help you make the links and make the connections so you could go deeper into it, right? Their therapy is not, it's not just show up and just dump everything. There's, again, there's a science to it, right? There's an artistry to it. You know, I love that you brought that word into this because I feel that people in the medical field, uh, all medical fields, especially people that are really good at their job, they don't really get the, uh, the acknowledgement of being an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, listen, if a guy can help fix your marriage, guy's an artist. If a woman can re-sew your ACL, that person's an, an artist. artist. Yes. You, know, you guys are artists. Yeah. The difference between me and the next therapist is our artistry, right? We, we can go through the same trainings, go through the same schools, have the same access to information. But the way that I deliver it or the way that I present it is going to be vastly different from the next therapist because part of it is my artistry, it's my personality, it's my belief, right? Yeah, absolutely. You guys are also performance athletes too. There's another thing there too, because you have to take on a lot of people's baggage, you know, (laughs) and and, and being able to perform. Like, I'm sure there's doctors that go into work who their relationships are falling apart, but they got to do a quadruple bypass. 100%. You know, to be able to put your personal life on the back burner for other people, that's one of the greatest sacrifices that anybody can do. I'm so proud of this show because I get to speak. I always say, Mm -hmm. oh, man, I get to talk to somebody smarter than me every week. Like, it's Mm -hmm. the best thing in the world. You know what I mean? For you, I hope that you take the time, honestly, to be like, I'm pretty dope. (laughs) Yes. Good. Thank you for for, for that. And and I appreciate that. And I really think that I am. Um, a very dope therapist, especially in the couples world. I've I'm not going to say I've worked some miracles, but hey, listen, I've earned my keep. And just like you said, like there are times after a session, I will go to my wife, like I'm sorry, she'll be like, for what? I'm like, 
I don't know, but yeah. I'm just sorry, based on what I experienced in that session. Also being able to go to her and be like, if I've ever done this, I'm sorry and I apologize. Or I'll even apologize for my gender, right? For us, on behalf of all men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I've been like that I'm too, sorry, I'm sorry. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, but there's already the stigma with like men, you know, uh, can't be pussies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we have to have this hard exterior but I do feel, though, in a sense, it's kind of true, though. So in, in the sense where I think it's kind of true is talking about a heterosexual male in a relationship with a female, a female does want to feel a sense of, of protection. It might not always be physical. At times, it might be financial or at times it might be emotional. Mm-hmm. But there is a sense of I feel that as men, we do have to have some kind of essence to be a protector in some way, shape or form when it comes to relationships, which can bleed into toxic masculinity sometimes. Yes, a balance is definitely needed. So um, let's think about it this way, right? In the world, in society, a man is supposed to have tunnel vision. A man is not supposed to be emotional. You're a businessman. Your goal is to climb up that ladder and focus on the results and kind of shut off your emotions and just focus on the task at hand. But when you come home, you got to do a 180. We don't want tunnel vision. We want you to be approachable. We want you to be um, emotional and vulnerable. So all of the things that you can be out in society and into the work fit, the workforce, we need the complete opposite of that at home. So a lot of times us men, we struggle with that because grow, growing up, men have to wear masks, right? Because it's survival of the fittest. If you're in high school and you're crying and you're emotional, you will be picked on continuously. So part of our survival strategy is natural emotions, right? In in high school, you try to be as cool as possible. You kind of show that nothing gets to you because people have nothing to pick on and you get to survive. Hence why men are comfortable with three emotions, anger, sadness, and happiness. That's it. But in reality, there's thousands of emotions that we don't even have the language for, especially as you have spoken. Every time you say, I feel, you're supposed to put a feeling there. You say that. I feel that. You feel what? What is that? What does that replace? What does that mean? Correct. Right. So in the workforce or in society, men have to wear those masks. But at home, we got to take that off and be a different version of ourselves. So you got to be able to find that balance. Have you ever had a relationship, a couple come in and ever honestly have to give advice to break up? So as a couple's therapist, we're not a referee, so we don't give advice. Okay. What I do is teach you the skills that you need to communicate, right? Got it. Part of that is me at times translating for you, right? So what I'm hearing you say is blah, 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 blah. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Now. Use your own language to communicate that, right? So I'm modeling the skill. Now, as the conversations are happening, it might lead to you guys deciding, hey, this is not working out, so let's break up. And part part, part, part of my work is to now, okay, cool. How exactly are we going to do that? What's going to be the division of goods or labor if there's children involved? How we're going to communicate that? So try to have a healthy breakup. But I don't tell the couple you guys should break up. I facilitate a conversation on where the relationship is going, what are our differences, and et cetera. Would that be considered mal 
practice? I wouldn't even say that it's a malpractice, but to me, that's that's the therapist not knowing their boundaries as a therapist. Your mm. job is not to offer your opinion or your perspective. Your job is to educate, right? And part of that education is helping the couple communicate what's happening for them and helping the other partner digested, comprehended, validated, and then responding to it. Now, within that dialogue, if if we're seeing that things are not working and a breakup is where you're leaning at, then that's a conversation that's going to happen. I do believe that all relationships can be saved as long as everyone is committed to making it work. You are a beautiful man for that statement. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I want to talk about narcissism for a second. Ooh, my favorite topic. Okay. In your expert opinion, if you had to put a number on I feel we're data guys, right? I feel like narcissist is a word that's thrown around a little loosely mm-hmm. nowadays, just from like Netflix and Twitter and whatever. Mm-hmm. What percentage of heterosexual men do you think are actually narcissists? It's a fair question. I would say it's presumed that about five to 10% suffer from a narcissistic personality disorder and would actually meet the criteria for that, I think it's going to rise due to social media, due to how the world is going within the next 10 years, I would say might get close to 20 to 30%, especially in big cities like New York and LA. Um, However, I do think there is a large percentage of us that present with narcissistic tendencies, right? And that'll bump that average up high yeah. yeah and that and that might be due to our socialization to how men are taught to show up and how to appear to be valuable for women right so that might be some of the underlying factors but it's hard to put a number on it because most narcissists are not going to go to therapy oh no right they're not showing up so if you're not diagnosed then you're not counted i always struggled with the thought of that I possibly could like be a narcissist. Then I started going to therapy and like really started to look into what narcissism is. And I was like, eh, I kind of had to give myself a bad break. Yeah. You do. You don't present as, as a narcissist whatsoever. But yeah. for you, when you spot, let's say a narcissist in a relationship, male or female, male, male, female, female, as somebody who, Outside looking in, I'm not a a therapist. In my mind, I'm going run, Mm -hmm. you know, but as somebody, you know, you said that you feel like every relationship can be saved. Except those. Except those, right? That's why I said. Except those. How do you approach something like that? That's so interesting to me. They're actually having that sit down in your office because I feel like if it's a couple's thing, they probably were dragged there in the first place. Yeah. So it doesn't take long for my radar to go off, that they are a presenting narc, right? And based on the assessment that that I also do, there there are some key things that I will look at. And if those are present, then um, the hypothesis is starting to form. The beauty of it is you don't need to tell the couple to break up, but you know that's what's going to happen eventually, right? right? Some faster than others, because in reality, a narc is not going to be able to take feedback on how they're performing or take any accountability for their parts in any ongoing conflict or the state of the relationship. Mm. They tend to be, no, it's 
your fault, your fault, your fault. I did nothing wrong. This is happening all, all because of you. And you also see a lot of what's the word I'm looking for? Defensiveness. Uh, was not sarcasm with contempt, right? That's that superiority complex. You'd be nothing with, without, me. without me. If it wasn't for me, you would never have this. This house, I paid for it. You would never have this car if it wasn't for me, right? Con- contempt is a 97% predictor of divorce, right? So the minute I start seeing that, the lack of accountability, the lack of empathy, eventually I know that the couple is headed to- toward a breakup. Now, as my job, you know, I'm going to push back on the narc to kind of self-reflect, to kind of take some accountability and et cetera, because that's the proper way of communicating. I feel like any good session, there's a little bit of a challenge that happens. And it's not like a, uh, you know, prehistoric time challenge where it's, you know, like you said, a judgmental challenge, but throwing things out there to see how they react. Like just to go back to your analogy of fishing, some fish have different tackle that you have to use. Mm-hmm. and different bait for like different fish mm-hmm. you know are there situations where you feel like all right i got him to a place where i want him to be now let's see if we can expand upon this so the self-reflect and the empathy and the accountability is not going to take place right on their part and now since they're no longer seeing me as an ally i'm not on their team jumping their partner and just blaming them they're not coming back to therapy. Mm in most cases, right? So now when the partner shows up without the narc, now the conversation is, okay, what does that say to you? Them no longer wanting to continue therapy is that how do you gauge that level of commitment, right? Then we can get into more questioning about abuse, right? Are you emotionally being abused, which is yes. And in a lot of cases, there's also financial abuse and there's also, also domestic abuse, right? So then my work can shift to more individual work to help the person process what is it that, that, that they're going through. And a lot of times help them label it. And uh, what I hear is, oh my God, I was thinking that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. you were, this is what I've been thinking. And then I would assign them two books. One is called To Stay or To Go, right? Which explains the relationship with a narcissist. Right. That's by Dr. Romani. I would say she she's the go-to expert on narcissism. And then the other book is Do You Know Who I Am? Right? Like a narc, you would hear those those language a lot. Like, do you know who I am? Who you talk? Do you know who you're talking to? Exactly. Right. So helping them, helping the the individual kind of kind of make sense of their experience of what they're going through so that their decision can be a lot easier. Ah. A lot of times it works where that person say, you know what? Yeah, this is what's happening. Now let's plan what your exit is going to look like because it needs to be done safely. And leaving a narcissistic relationship might be the hardest thing you ever have to do in life. So if you you get a lawyer for for a divorce, you also need to tell them, have you dealt with narcs? Because it's not going to be a regular divorce. There's going to be a lot attached to it. And some of the couples would tell you, no, I'm going to continue to work on my relationship. They stop coming to therapy. And then three months later, you get that email. Yeah. Hey, Matt, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've been waiting for you. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, We were waiting. We were checking the email. Sometimes I feel apprehensive because at times I feel I can have those 
particular traits being a male. Yes. And those traits are generalized, right? If you're on a boss mindset, if you're very focused on your next goal, you're going to show some of those traits, right? You're going to have an armor on and just focus on where you're trying to get to and getting to your goals. But what, what tends to differentiate someone that may have a few narcissistic tendencies and one that's a full-on narc is the ability to even have that conversation and ask, hey, am I presenting as a narc, mm. right? Being able to show empathy and self-reflect and growth and go to therapy. You're not going to find a narc. Most narcs are not going to therapy. I myself, young Mac, um, college Mac, my 20-year-old self, I try to diagnose myself. Like I'm showing a lot of these symptoms. Yes. Right. But that's across the board. So, but I, I do think as due to the evolution of social media being a highlighted um, clip of all of my accomplishments here, I look amazing here, all these filters and et cetera, the rise of narcissists is definitely on the rise. I can't even imagine. Um, yeah, we're screwed. Yeah. Especially, <laughs> yeah, especially with certain people who are being pushed to the forefront and their agendas are, you know, outrageous. Uh, in the social media front. We also love narcs as a society. We love narcs. Of course. They're, they're entertaining. 100%. A, a lot of us wish we could have an, an ounce of their bravado. For sure. Their self-confidence. Absolutely. But, and then when they self-sabotage, then what? It becomes the circus. Correct. Because we give them the narcissistic fuel. We're yes. double tapping. We're commenting. We're resharing. Now we are their provider. So they are going to continue to do the same thing, looking for that narcissistic fuel once more. And a narcissist won't leave a relationship. They will. A narcissist will leave a relationship, one, when they find out that you do know that they are a narcissist. But what's interesting is they already have groomed someone else for that position, right? So now they can exit you because the narcissistic fuel is not as high, right? So they're not getting as much from you anymore, but they've already been prepping someone to play that role. So when they leave you, they go right to that person to gain that fuel. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a shame, but also a blessing that these people exist. <laughs> you know, I, I know I, that you probably have a, a better term for it, but mm -hmm. just for the sake of science, kind of need these people the nerd in me loves it that's what i'm saying right. yeah yeah the nerd, in, <laughs> the you nerd in me loves it but my my only wish is that they wouldn't be able to reproduce right because having to deal with a narcissistic father or nar narcissistic mom breeds a new version of a narcissist absolutely right so the cycle is just going to continue but if we could get all narcissists on a remote island with 24-hour access to a camera to just see what they do, that would be fantastic. I would pay a premium for that. It would be the best reality show. I would pay $14.99 a month to watch that. <laughs> I would actually volunteer to be one of the therapists on that island at times to engage with them. But I feel inclined to ask, do you think a narcissist can change? No. Data-wise, has that been proven? Or Because it's hard to get them in the room, right? Like, data-wise. Yes, it, it's hard to 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 get them in the room. We might need to make this island. <laughs> it, it's hard to get them to self self reflect or to even identify 
from their perspective, what, what needs to change. A narcissist eventually learns how to weaponize everything around them to get to their goal, right? So we might say a narcissist does natural empathy, but a narcissist succeeds in weaponizing empathy, right? So they, they can walk up to someone whose father passed and be like, hey, I'm very sorry for you that, that this has happened. Um, if you need any help with anything, you let me know. Or they automatically insert themselves in that person's life and start doing certain aspects just to gain access to that narcissistic fuel for that person. What's interesting is that a narcissist tends to match well with a codependent, right? So those that if you're continuously dating a narcissist, at some point you got to ask yourself, what is it about me or which parts of myself have not healed enough to the point that I'm susceptible to a narcissist? This is a beautiful conversation because self-reflection is so huge. You have to be willing to ask yourself these questions. And anybody listening that could be dealing with you know this at home, these are some of the questions that they should ask themselves, right? Can a narcissist convert? someone to be a narcissist? No, no, you cannot because I need the fuel f- from you. Your job is a narcissist is a car. Their partner is the gas tank or, or is, it's, it's where they go to fill up their car. Okay. Right. So if you're a narcissist as well, so where are we getting the fuel from? Right. So hence why you a narciss- two narcissists really work together because there's that power struggle that happens, but being a codependent where you're people pleaser, where you need someone to validate your existence or to, to make you feel whole or loved, make you very susceptible to a narcissist because when they're love bombing you, you're not even thinking twice about it because you just like how it feels to be wanted and desired. Mm, yes, it, man, it's mental gymnastics. It's, it's beautiful. Are you and your partner in therapy? We have done couples therapy throughout the years. I don't want to sound cocky with it, but I'd like to think that I'm at the point now, we're at the point now, if there's a major issue, we can come to my office right. and handle it ourselves. But yes, we have a couple a couples therapist and individual therapist when needed. Um, I'm currently in, in therapy for, the, for this season because there's a lot that's happening around me. So that's def- definitely beneficial to me. But yes, premarital therapy, uh, workshops, we're always doing couples workshop. We're always reading a lot of relationship books. Um, if I go to a training, I'm bringing her the material as well. So we're definitely investing. Your team. Our, yeah. Your team. Uh, any, any good relationship is a team, I feel like. People feel from time to time sad to be a part of a team, right? There is a codependency. And is it healthy to be codependent in a way? Too much of anything is never healthy, right? Very true. There's definitely need to be a balance. You cannot base your existence upon how someone else view you, right? I do think, you know, there, there's opportunities where you can rely on someone or you can ask someone to show up for you. But holistically, you should continue to work on yourself to eventually have a secure attachment. Ah, okay. You Freud guy? At first. I feel like everybody goes through that phase where yeah. where they become very Freudian and they're like, eh. Yeah, you know, Freud is is usually our first introduction. It's baseline. Psychology. Yeah. 
So the reason I asked that question is two two questions. Mm-hmm. At some point when you become a therapist, right? You have to find your own identity. Yes. But you are using, you know, some, I guess, sacred scrolls, the sacred <laughs> scrolls of therapy, right? But it, a lot of it's making it your own, which is a beautiful thing that I like to see because a lot of people I see that go to therapy either give up on it because they weren't vibing with their therapist. I had to go to eight. (laughs) That's on me. But like you said, if I'm giving, I need to be given to as well. Correct. And again, that's where the artistry comes in. Mm. Right. Um, We all have the same information, but the way you conduct yourself kind of dictates whether or not someone feels comfortable. With me and men, we do very well. Right. Right. And women as well, because I understand men, right? We speak the same language. We have the same style. We have the same swag. We can talk about sports. Like, I am a man's guy, right? right. So, so I get the toughest guys. The guys in the streets, the guys from jail, I get the tough, tough guys. And we connect because I see you, you see me, right? I've always said, I am the therapist I wish I had when I was younger. That's a great spot to be in. Yeah, because... Uh, I mean, at first, I, I was wearing a suit consistently, shirt and tie and et cetera. Now, kind of fire, though, now. If you did that now, they'd be like, yo, this guy's kind of drippy. Right, you know what I'm saying? I'll have a hoodie on and my T-shirt on or it, or et cetera, because I know that my presentation does not validate my skill set. And my presentation is also part of the artistry that I am creating to better engage you and build that rapport that is needed for us to do the deep work that we actually need to do. Yeah, see, you have the degree, I have the off-white on, and I don't have a degree. So there we go. We're breaking barriers here, but we do both have house plans. <laughs> mine's fake. Yeah, yeah, mine's real. Okay, well, you're better yeah. at it than me. I don't got to go. Do you think men or women want to date someone like their parent more? I wouldn't say it's gender-based. I think to some degree, our first understanding of love um, comes from our parents. So either we create what we saw or we create what we wanted to see. So if you think about it, all of our triggers is rooted into our childhood, right? So when couples show up in conflict, we help them identify the trigger and relate it back to their childhood and have them tell that story. Just to self-disclose with me and my wife, a lot of times I'm very mindful on how I structure certain things. Because in her childhood, she was used to the men telling the women, the wives, what to do. And they didn't have an opinion. So if I tell her, hey, babe, do this, that's an automatic trigger. Versus me saying, hey, babe, um, what do you think about this decision here? Let me tell you something. (laughs) I'm learning today. Because I don't want to be bossed around either, but I don't mean it that way sometimes. You know, I say, you know, hey, babe, can you grab me a seltzer? I don't realize what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I can be triggering something in her. And it's not to the point where you want to be afraid of your partner. The thing is, you want to be able to speak to them naturally the way they want to be spoken to naturally. Yes, but eventually, as, as, as you start to build an, an emotional bank account, right? where your partner is seeing that you're not disrespecting them and there's no superiority complex, that eventually those triggers are no longer as 
volatile as as they used to be. All right. So now I can say, hey, babe, we're doing this. Hey, babe, this is what I want for dinner. And it won't be a trigger. It won't be a conflict because by now we've built such a history together that you know how I present myself and you know how we interact in this relationship. But at yeah. first, those are kind of the conversations that are needed. Do you think that all uh, relationships are more give than take? Or you think it should be 50-50? It's a ratio of five to one, right? So for every one negative comment or behavior that you do, you need five positive things just to counter that one negative thing. So again, if, if, if we go back to the emotional bank account, a negative thing is a withdrawal. You need five deposits just to counter that one withdrawal, right? Technically, to answer your question, a relationship should be about servitude and giving. One of the rituals of connections that I have with my wife is every night before bed, we tell each other five things I appreciated that you did in the past 24 hours. That I like. Right? I appreciate you for making the bed. I appreciate you for bathing the kids. I appreciate you for working overtime this week or, or whatever it is, because that's me making emotional deposits. And I have a cheat code for you as well. Moving forward. Every time you depart and reunite with your partner, you are to engage in a six-second kiss. So every time you leave the house and every time you return into the home, you got to kiss for six seconds. So that's called the potential kiss. It has the potential to lead to a million things, right? Um, your lips are erogenous zone. Your saliva has oxytocin and dopamine, which also help you feel closer to your partner. And six seconds require that you are mindful and present versus you on autopilot say bye babe right right that's on autopilot that does nothing for you but taking the six seconds to actually connect will make a world of a difference so couples that struggle with intimacy that's one of the first exercises i have them do after two weeks they're pumping each other everywhere right yeah and they're connecting <laughs> they're all over the place yeah. just with that six second kiss absolutely again research data and the science can make relationships so easy to navigate if you know exactly what you're doing, if you have a game plan. Absolutely. Wow. Do you believe in love languages? Yes. So love languages is another method of showing up for your partner. And love languages tend to be rooted in what you were missing as a child. Example, me. Haitian culture. I've never heard my parents say, I love you. I've never gotten hugs or nothing like yeah, that. Yeah. My dad didn't tell me he loved me. My dad's Italian and he was a uh, first generation. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he didn't <laughs> tell me he loved me. Until, yeah. He didn't tell me he loved me until I was like 24, 25 years old. Exactly. So, you know, and I longed for it too. Mm -hmm. But in your relationship, words of affirmation is going to mean a lot to you. Oh yeah. It's huge. Those, those are the things that you are deprived of. Right. So for, for me, words of affirmation and physical touch, like my wife could buy me the most expensive thing in the world, but if you didn't touch me for the past two hours, I'm upset. I don't feel like yeah, that's me. Like too. You pass by me, touch me. Yeah. You're sitting next to me, put your foot on me or let me grab your ass, put, put my hand on you somewhere. Yeah. I need that touch. If yeah. I didn't touch you, something I wasn't touched, I don't feel loved. Yeah. Damn, I like that too, man. Mac, you are the man, dude. And people will say at times, like, those are the primal needs that stick out the most for me. Correct. And it's very simple. You know, um, it's it's the truth. 
obviously since the pandemic relationships have, you know, I'm sure one, your office is always full Two, the dynamics of relationships have kind of changed, right? Because people were forced to live with each other. Correct. Any advice to people that are listening that are in a different type of dynamic relationship because of the pandemic and are, you know, about to take a huge step in their life, whether it be moving in together, getting married, is there kind of a baseline trick that they could kind of use? You know, I hate to say the word trick because it's mm-hmm. like so magic, but, you know, something that they can use just in terms of communication before moving in together or getting married. On average, couples wait six years too late before going to couples therapy, right? So I would say the first thing is play offense and not defense. If that's the person you want to be with and you want to build a healthy, long-lasting relationship, so why not invest in it now versus waiting until something catastrophic happened, right? We go to the gym to work out and to have better health. We don't wait until the doctor gives us a diagnosis and then... We're going to the gym. Usually, if you don't build the habits, it's usually too late by that point. Correct. Right. But I would say, in terms of communication, I have another cheat code because I love cheat codes. How do we make life and relationships easy? It's called the de stress conversation. And what, what, what does that mean? So, every day after work, you literally sit together for 20 minutes. The first, so there's a speaker and a listener. The speaker will speak about what's going on in their world, what's going on in their life and how their day went while the listener just listens. You do not problem solve. You do not offer advice. You do not even offer an opinion. You just listen, right? And after that, you switch roles. But the only rule is you cannot talk about the relationship. Okay. It's not the time to criticize your partner. It's not the time to attack your partner. It's not the time to tell them how unhappy you are with them. I feel like you're so right with that too, because a lot of times people just want to talk. Yes. And most of the time, whatever comes out of our mouths is is not the right answer anyway. Correct. And and what's interesting is that a man spends 2.5 seconds listening before moving to problem solving. So having to sit there for 10 minutes, help them be better listeners. And plus you get to know what's going on in your partner's world what's going on in their life, how are they feeling, what are they experiencing. Now you gain more access to them, which then creates a deeper connection, a deeper friendship. Now, if you think of intimacy, women say there's a lack of emotional connection and a man says there's a lack of physical connection. Well, this 20 minutes just solved it because that's all emotional connection. And then you reap the rewards later. Like uh, a, a famous person once told me once, foreplay starts in the morning. Four plays a 24-hour process. Four plays starts at the end of her last orgasm till the next orgasm. 100%. Yes, sir. And I promise this is the last question. We ask it to everyone who comes on the show, but I I always get excited to see how uh, licensed people answer this question. Are you happy today? I am ecstatic today beautiful out i've had some amazing sessions i'm done for the day i'm about to go pick up the kids we're gonna go play in the yard i bought them a little pool so we're gonna play in that and just watching them enjoy themselves is my prize for the day kind of what it's all about right yes if if you're blessed enough to have it those are that that, that's the best movie that's the best movie there is right exactly listen can't thank you enough 
I really can't. Thank you so much. Um, for anybody that is looking to find you, you know, reach out to you, possibly become a patient. You can find me on Instagram and as talk to Mac underscore therapist, talk to ALK, the number two Mac M-A-C underscore therapist. You can also check on my podcast that I co-host that's called Menage Mind. So think of Menage Trois, remove the Trois and just put mind, Menage Mind, where it's mainly based on therapy, the access to therapies, the process of therapy, as well as relationship content. So you can find all of my information and everything I have to offer on these two pages. I love it. I love it. And uh, you guys can find us at 101OTC on Instagram. Uh, you know, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. Go check out Max podcast again, my man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your platform. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate, entertainment. Ah!